Catherine immediately says 92,305, which she says that's the largest known germane prime. Well, if I can correct yes, you. Yes, please correct me. <laughs> 92,305 times 2 to the power 16,998 plus 1. Welcome to another episode of No Script. This is Jacob Mann Christensen, and usually Jackson would come in at this point and say, and I'm Jackson Nikolai. However, if you've been a listener for No Script for any length of time, we are now in our third season, and each season we try to do an episode where we have a guest as part of our podcast. So this is our guest episode for season three, so it's just me today. There's no Jackson Nikolai. You're not going to hear his voice sneak in at any time unless in the editing he decides to throw you a little bit of an Easter egg. We'll see what Jackson decides to do with that. Instead of being joined by Jackson today, I am joined by Dr. Dennis Brewer, who's a professor of mathematics at the University of Arkansas. Hi, Dennis. Hi. Hi, Jacob. Glad to be here. Thank you. We're very excited to have you on. We're very excited to have Dennis be our guest today because the script that we're discussing, really, really wonderful script, a script I've loved for a long time. I think a script a lot of people have loved and a lot of people have done in some capacity or another. Maybe you've done scenes from it, you've designed from it, probably you've seen it in some capacity or another, or at the very, very least, you've definitely read it. And that script is Proof by David Auburn. We're pumped to be talking about proof today. However, before we get into our conversation about the script, I do want to ask everybody who's listening to please consider going on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. Again, the URL there is patreon.com slash no script podcast. If that's the best way to get to it, rather than going to Patreon and searching for us, just type in that URL. That's where you're going to be able to become a supporter of the show. If you're a supporter of No Script, you have access to patron-only podcasts, uh, I'm sorry, patron-only posts and things like that, which is awesome. But the most important thing is that you're supporting the work that we're doing here. It's a passion project. We love the show. We love doing it. We love our discussions, but it's not free. So we're asking for your help to support what we're doing. You can join for as low as a dollar a month, and that dollar really does help us out with hosting fees and the cost of purchasing scripts we can't buy at our local library or can't check out at our local library and things like that. So if you'd please consider heading on over there, that would be awesome. But for now, back to the script. So the reason why we're so excited to have Dennis with us today is Proof is a script all about mathematics people. It's a script about uh, a whole family and then an outsider who are math people. We'll talk about the plot in just a minute here, but we do want to, as we try to do, give you just a brief overview of the context where it happened. Proof was written in the year 2000 by David Auburn. That, that was developed at the George Street Playhouse in New Jersey. And then Proof did win the 2001 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. So we talk about Pulitzer Prize winning plays all the time in our effort to capture that tagline that we say, talking about theater's best scripts. We love to pull from scripts that have won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Proof is one of those. There's other great ones in our uh, in our back history that you could go and listen to. Proof also won the Tony Award for Best Play when it played there. 
what's interesting is that one of the subplots of No Script, if you've been listening for a while, is that when we do these late 1990s, early 2000s shows, we are oftentimes kind of unintentionally perhaps following the early career of Mary Louise Parker. This is one of the many scripts we've now talked about where the initial role uh, produced like when it was on Broadway, in this case at the Manhattan Theater Club and then at the Walter Kerr Theater in the year 2000, is that Mary Louise Parker was one of the people who originated a lot of the roles of, of some of the ones that we've been talking about. So in this case, Mary Louise Parker played Catherine during that run, and that's awesome. There's lots of other people who've been in lots of the subsequent productions. Mary Louise Parker did win a Tony Award for that. And then later on, people like Neil Patrick Harris have been in this show. Gwyneth Paltrow has been in this show. It has been produced many, many times. It was really popular on the regional theater scene. Maybe five or six years ago, it did a round of lots of regional theaters in the United States, including our theater here. Dennis lives with me in Arkansas. Not not with me in the same house. We just both <laughs> live in Arkansas. Um, he is a professor at the University of Arkansas, as I said, here in town. And our regional theater is Theater Squared. And in 2014, they produced this as part of that wave of theaters that produced this awesome, awesome little show. So that's the basic context that surrounds it. I'm going to hop in and just do a brief description of the plot so that everybody kind of knows where we're at and where we're headed before Dennis and I hop into what I hope will be a really interesting conversation. Proof is about... Uh, a small family of people. It, it's mostly about a young woman named Catherine. Catherine is the daughter of a math genius. The math genius name is Robert. Robert, apparently in his younger days, was able to do a lot for the world of mathematics. He, he, he was, the work that he was doing was really forward thinking. It apparently changed the world of mathematics in the world of the play uh, quite a bit. And Catherine is his daughter. Robert, however, shortly after doing some of his really best work as a young man, began to have what we would think of as some sort of mental illness that had took away his ability to think straight, took away his ability to use what he calls the machinery, which is his brain and the way his brain works. So we open on Catherine and Robert having a conversation. Catherine has been Robert's caretaker for a long time. And we learn in the very first scene of the play that that Robert has died. He died about a week before the action of the play starts, and so they're about to have a funeral for him. Catherine is clearly seeing him. She, in that first scene, has a whole conversation with him not being there and, and kind of him, her just imagining him. Enter into that kind of tension of father recently dying, father being a genius, uh, adult woman having to care for him. Enter into that Hal, who was a former student of Robert's. Hal is at Catherine and Robert's house, now just Catherine's house because Robert has died. Hal is there to go through all of Robert's old notebooks. Robert wrote compulsively as part of his illness, and so he has hundreds of notebooks stacked in the attic, uh, mostly full of nonsense, full of scribbles, full of words and ideas that don't have anything strung together. And Hal is going through them, hoping to find some kind of spurt of math genius amid the notebooks that he can bring back and reveal to the world that Robert really was able to do some work even in the midst of all this. So he's there reading all these notebooks and he and Catherine kind of get to know each other. Their story becomes a little bit of a romance story as, as they kind of slowly fall for each other over the course of the play. 
Catherine's sister arrives early in the play too, Claire. Claire is there because she's been working in New York to pay the bills for Catherine, who's not been able to work or go to school, she says, because she's been caring for her dad. Claire is there to help the funeral. The funeral happens at one point. Ultimately, what is discovered about halfway through the show, after Catherine and Hal have kind of gotten together, um, they, they slept together after the funeral party one night, and the next morning, Catherine gives Robert the key to a desk, I'm sorry, Hal the key to a desk, and what Hal finds in the desk is a proof of, kind of vaguely, a really important mathematical theorem about prime numbers. And it's the kind of work that Hal says mathematicians have been trying to do since there were mathematicians. Catherine says that she wrote it. Act two follows the tension of what happens after that. Do they believe her? Do Hal and Claire believe that Catherine actually wrote this? Catherine does definitely have some of her dad's math talent, but doesn't have a lot of higher ed schooling in math. She went to Northwestern for a little while, Northwestern in Chicago. They all live in Chicago, except for Claire, who's flown in from New York. So she went to Northwestern Chicago for just a semester or two before she had to come back and care for her dad. Doesn't have a lot of schooling. The characters aren't necessarily inclined to believe her right out of the gate. And she feels pretty resentful and hurt about that. Ultimately, Hal brings the notebook to his friends at the University of Chicago, other mathematicians. Uh, they examine it, and the play kind of ends with Hal saying that he agrees that Catherine probably was the one who did it, and they go through that together. That's the large sweep of the play. There's lots of cool details and interesting things that happen. Dennis, I'm interested, from your point of view, right out of the gate, being a mathematician, living in the world of university mathematics, how did you feel about the way that David Auburn wrote mathematicians? Well, I thought he was very uh, realistic. I mean, he tried to write uh, mathematicians uh, as people. Uh, he does use the word geeks and nerds and wonks and things like that quite a lot. But uh, at least Hal is, he's in a band. Uh, he and his mathematician friends uh, enjoy partying. Um, uh, he enjoys, uh, he, he wants to have a girlfriend, namely uh, Catherine. And uh, he seems to be a very sort of genuine and honest individual. Uh, who is trying to look out for Catherine and trying to do the right thing. Yeah, there's this really funny scene in, I think it's even right away in the first scene, where they get on this subject of how mathematicians are considered geeks and nerds, and Hal says the the idea that this that stereotype doesn't end up really being that true. All the mathematicians that he knows, at least they're his group of friends, are able to hold down a steady job, shower and bathe regularly, date regularly, make plenty of money. So they kind of throw off that old-time stereotype of math geeks and nerds. Yeah, and then it's the theoretical physicists that get drunk all the time. There's this sort of running gag in the script of how mathematicians and especially theoretical physicists love to party. And Hal describes all these conferences that they go to where it's all sex, drugs, and rock and roll and lots of alcohol. And that's ultimately kind of why mathematicians go to these conferences, at least in the jokey kind of way that Hal tells that. I've been to conferences of that sort. I've also been to conferences where uh, there would be a, almost a concert-level pianist who's a mathematician who's playing. And so it seemed like music and mathematics also tend to go together. And, and what I think is interesting is, is that David Auburn has chose to dig into characters who are very high-level mathematicians in a very human way, right? He, One of the interesting 
kind of details that I noticed, especially as I was reading the play multiple times, was the fact that Robert, again, who's who's Catherine's dad, he has a couple of flashback scenes where we get to see, I guess, the real him rather than just the imaginary him that Catherine talks to sometimes. When we're in these flashback scenes, one of the things that I found interesting was that Robert knows and cares about the sports of Chicago, too. Just one of those sort of small details that's not made a big deal of, but humanizes that character. Yes, he's a mathematician and a genius one and a professor, but he has opinions and cares about things outside of just that specific field or subject, too. Yes, and the University of Chicago would certainly be a setting where you would expect to find very high-level mathematics going on. So the play is called Proof, which is is a pun, right? There's a there's multiple meanings in the word proof. There's the theoretical mathematical proofs that occur as plot fodder in the script. And then there's this idea, this kind of standing idea through the second half of the play that Catherine needs to prove that she was the one that actually wrote this proof. And at one point... And actually, really, in two different scenes where they're sparring about it, at one point, Hal's the one who says there's never going to be any proof. There's no way to prove that you wrote this. And then later on, Catherine's the one who says, no, there's no real way for that proof to come about. For it being the title word of the play and being a, a major plot point of this theoretical proof, it was interesting to me, Dennis, and, and it, my memory of the script served me probably incorrectly as I came back to the script after having been a couple years since I read it. The actual proof, the mathematical proof that drives the second half of the plot, it doesn't appear until right before Act Two. Yes, uh, in the notebook that was locked in the drawer. And um, we only know, we don't know much about it even by the end of the play, only that it's about 40 pages, uh, that it has something, that the proposition has something to do with prime numbers, and that it's something that would be understood by by a layperson that newspapers wanted to know about this, that it would sort of take the world by storm uh, in a way that most mathematical results do not. Yeah, so I'm interested in that a little bit, Dennis. What is your sense of the kind of mathematics that would be so important that, as Hal says, newspapers around the world would want to interview um, Catherine, because she's the one, at first they believe the one that found it in her father's stuff. Later, she claims she was the one that wrote it. Do you have a sense of, I mean, I know that there are, in my very little understanding of the mathematical world, I know that there are supposedly impossible problems. And at one point, I knew a little bit about some of those and would have been interested in if somebody had decided to solve them. Um, but I, I don't know much about What's your? Do you have a sense of what what level of mathematics would we be dealing with for how to claim that? Well, it would need to be some kind of a result that uh, a scientifically minded person could understand. Someone that knew about prime numbers, that um, understood prime numbers. We've known since the time of Archimedes that there are infinitely many prime numbers. They just get more and more rare as the numbers get larger. And uh, But no one has ever found, for example, a formula for generating prime numbers of arbitrary large size. So it might have something to do with that. Uh, it's not known, for example, uh, if there are infinitely many twin primes. A twin prime are two prime numbers that differ by only two, which is the smallest they can differ by, like 29 and 31. It's not known whether there are infinitely many of those. 
large prime numbers have come into sort of uh, importance because of public key cryptography. A lot of uh, cryptology, a lot of the secure transmission of bank statements and things of that nature over the internet depend upon the existence of and the knowledge of very large prime numbers. So um, if they had a way of actually generating these large prime numbers, that would be extremely important. Right now, we sort of judge supercomputers by how big of a prime number they've found. And there's currently a record as to the biggest known prime number. We know there's bigger ones, but uh, they have to be computed one at a time. That's really interesting. I, I was not aware of the real-world implications of how prime numbers work. In fact, I was just about to ask you, prime numbers seems like a particularly esoteric branch of mathematics. It's not, you know, the algebra that I'm using in my everyday life to solve simple problems that I need for living. It seems like a mathematician's game, but it's interesting to hear about, especially the way that supercomputers are kind of judged by their ability to gain infinitely large prime numbers. One of the really cool things about the way David Auburn set up um, Catherine's proof later on in the script is he builds into her character and her conversations a couple of times the idea of prime numbers and the discussions of prime numbers earlier in the script. There's two that at least come to mind for me very obviously right away. You remember she's talking with her imaginary father, we learn at the end of the scene, uh, in the very first scene of the play, and she talks about how she has wasted or lost 33 and a quarter days, which her father says if 33 and a quarter days, if every day were a year, then that would equal so many numbers of weeks and that that ultimate number is a really interesting prime 1, number. 1,729. I don't know that it's, I'd have to check if it's a prime number, but the, the point of what they were saying is that it's the smallest number that can be expressed as the sum of two cubes in two different ways. So that's the significance of that number. And there's a sort of a, maybe a, a an apocryphal story about the Indian mathematician Ramanujan who got into a taxi cab and the number on the taxi, taxi cab was 1729 and he immediately told the cab driver that he had a very special number for a cab number. Well, see, that that kind of stuff, that the, the ability to access the next level of what they're talking about convinces me that David Auburn either has some uh, point of entry into the world of mathematics already. I don't know much about his schooling or his environment or his, his relations, or he was able to do a, a pretty significant amount of research. The familiarity that the characters talk about numbers seems like something that comes from the familiarity of numbers in the playwright. The idea that Catherine can have this conversation with her father about a, a prime number like that, that is, you know, uh, uh, it's the smallest number, say one more time. It can be expressed as the sum of two cubes, like 10 cubed plus 9 cubed, in two different ways, because it's also 12 cubed plus 1 cubed. So, the idea that Catherine knows that, and it, it's true that it is her father, quote-unquote, that actually says that detail in the scene. But by the end of the scene, we learn that her father is just her talking to herself. So it, it's knowledge that she has. And that sets us up for this idea that she knows quite a bit more about prime numbers than she lets on. Later on, her and Hal, in the scene right before they end up together, have a conversation about prime numbers where he gives a very low-level example. 
And the prime numbers he's talking about are, they're called germane primes. They, they have this discussion about this ancient mathematician, not, not so ancient, 1776, but quite a bit older than modern day mathematicians, I guess. Um, and, and, and germane primes are, if you double them and add one, you get another prime. That doesn't mean a whole lot to me, but I guess they're, they're significant in some way. Well, just an interesting thing. I don't think they have any practical – I mean, they would have a practical application if you could find a – know that something was a germane prime, then you can find a bigger prime by doubling and adding one. The point, I think, of their discussion was he was trying to bring out the importance of women mathematicians and that Sophie Germain was a woman uh, and that she had this result. And, uh, for example – Five is a germane prime because two times five plus one is 11, which is another prime. And so in the course of this conversation, he trying to explain what germane primes is, he gives the example of two. Two doubled plus one is five, which is also a prime number. Catherine immediately says 92,305, which she says that's the largest known germane prime. Well, if I can correct yes, you. Yes, please correct me. <laughs> 92,305 times 2 to the power 16,998 plus 1. So uh, that is, she's saying, is a germane prime. Now, that's probably the larger of the germane primes. So if you subtract the 1 and divide by 2, uh, uh, I'm not sure. That's probably the largest germane and prime. And so she's able to bring out that knowledge on, off the top of her head. Yes, she has a very good memory for numbers. And um, that becomes, I think, kind of a, a good bed upon which we're ready to believe that Catherine may have written this particular proof. I'm interested, Dennis, whether or not this was your particular first experience with the script, when you encountered this story for the first time, w were you inclined to believe Catherine? I mean, ultimately, I, I think the script believes her. I think we're meant to believe her by the end of the story. But when she claims that, do you find yourself siding with Claire and Hal about with skepticism? Or do you find yourself siding with Catherine in kind of firm belief? At that point in the script, I would say I'm still with a skeptic. I'm still with Hal. I mean, a person, uh, there's all kinds of people that have all kinds of prodigious memory that can do number tricks, that can multiply large numbers, that know lots of things about numbers. But to prove the sort of result that um, Catherine claims she's proven, she would know, have to know a lot of mathematics that really on the face of it, it would appear to have nothing to do with numbers. They mention modular forms, for example. They mention algebraic curves, all kinds of deep mathematical subjects that would be tools for proving something about prime numbers. And it's only after we discover that Robert has brought all of these books, that she's brought all these books from the library for Robert, and that she's had these all these years to study all these books and all these papers about other subjects, that that kind of makes the case that she might have been, might have proven this result. I'm interested. One of the things we like to do in these conversations is deep dive kind of into who a character is, what we know about them, and what that says about them that might be unspoken. In your experience, knowing that maybe you don't know the kind of people that could do this level of math, I don't, I don't know. I don't know really what it takes to do this level of math. But given your experience of other mathematicians, 
do you have any insight about is there a is there a particular kind of person or a particular facet of Catherine's personality? Maybe incredible dedication, or um, is it just is it just truly sheer genius that would let her access math at this level, especially without schooling? Well, she yes, yeah, she does have just sort of an innate ability to do mathematics and to understand mathematical logic. Uh, but she's also evidently spent a lot of nights when her father was asleep uh, studying all these books that he has in his study and having a real interest in doing this um, as kind of a, a passionate thing. And, and a person who does this has to be able to just concentrate completely on one thing for hours on end and and not be interrupted uh, and... Um, Maybe on her walks with her dad, they enjoy doing that. Maybe she's able to think about some of these things. It doesn't seem like they were very conversational, perhaps, uh, at night. Um, it would take both innate ability and time to do a lot of study and concentration. Yeah, and what's interesting to me is this idea that Catherine is self-taught, right? She she goes to Northwestern and very quickly after she goes to just her undergrad, right? She's not even finished her undergrad and is on to a master's program and has to leave. She has to leave shortly after starting her undergrad at Northwestern to come back because her father has kind of fallen apart. She decides to go to Northwestern even though she's caring for her father because her father has kind of supposedly come back a little bit. He's had a, a healthy spell where he's he's not working on these deep mathematical problems. That's what they kind of refer to as the work. But he is working in the sense that he's back teaching at the University of Chicago. He He's kind of bright and on it again. She says, you, you're feeling fine. So she goes to Northwestern. They let her in on a full ride, either because her father is who he is or because she has this really deep gift, maybe a combination of both. And she almost immediately has to come back. So she has very little schooling at all. And I love that you brought up this detail. It's a detail that I didn't even catch really until you said it, is that how does when Hal is proving or going through the going through the proof and checking it piece by piece, he notices all this advanced math that's in it, new math that he's not sure whether Robert really would have known or been studying. But he also knows that the attic is full of textbooks, and so he says, "Well, Robert must have taught himself all of this advanced math." And I love that you brought in this detail, this idea that well, that is where Catherine is learning the advanced math. She doesn't just have the ability to understand all of this innately. She has spent a lot of nights working on the proof, but also a lot of nights working on textbooks, working on understanding new math concepts that would have led her to this. Yes, and um, she's, uh, to me, sort of one of the thoughts of the play is that you know there's a theorem in logic uh, proven by Kurt Gödel that there will always be statements that are undecidable. There will, even in mathematics, you can always come up with statements that no one, there simply is no proof as to whether they are true or false. And like in Euclid's Elements, we have to assume these five axioms. You have to assume that these truths are self-evident. You have to start somewhere to build an axiomatic system in which you decide that something is true or false. And uh, perhaps we're left with the idea that it's impossible to prove whether or not Catherine wrote 
that proof, but we're going to have to trust one another at some point and not rely on a proof. Yeah, well, I, I think that's really interesting because they have, like I said, Catherine and Hal end up sparring about whether or not she wrote this proof in two scenes. They're not right, right one after another. They're a little bit separated in Act Two. And in the first of those two scenes, Hal makes what is a really good point, which is ultimately. Even if you under, even if you were able to walk me through this proof and explain it piece by piece, even that doesn't prove that you wrote it because you lived here with Robert for years. He could have explained it to you. There's this, you know, we talk about um, in in our popular culture. There's this idea that you can't prove a negative. That's not always exactly true, but that's kind of a, a common mythos of our society. You can't prove a negative. In this case, it might be the case that you can't prove a positive. You know, this might be the kind of uh, case that we'd have to rely on court logic. Well, is it probably true beyond a reasonable doubt? And that doesn't really work especially well in mathematics, right? This, I, you know, you want to find in mathematics proofs. things are true or false, or undecidable. And so this idea that Hal and, and Catherine, in order to move forward in their relationship, in order for them to kind of move forward in their lives, they have to be willing to accept the idea that I'm going to have a little bit of faith that what I think might be true is true, even though it's unprovable. I love the connection to this math idea that there are some things that are un simply unprovable. So returning to kind of where this proof comes in in the story, it's not introduced until a little before Act Two. And, you know, if we think about kind of the traditional Western plot structure, and th there's maybe deeper arguments to be had about whether this is that or this is something else, but assuming that it is, in kind of a traditional Western standard plot structure, there would be an inciting incident, which is kind of the beginning motion of the character, the main character's journey. And you would think, given the title, given the second half of the play's focus on the proof, that would be an easy thing to just jump out and say, well, when they discover the proof, that's the inciting incident to the story about whether or not Catherine wrote this proof. But I kind of think that there might be, there's sort of two problems with that. The first is that the proof doesn't come in until the beginning of, the end of Act 1, the beginning of Act 2. So that's a long time to be in this story and not have the story started. And also, I love what we just talked about too as a problem with that, which is that that question doesn't ever really get resolved. Hal decides to believe her, but the question of whether she actually wrote it doesn't really get resolved. So I'm interested, Dennis, do you have any thoughts about... What is this story about for Catherine more than just the idea of whether or not she proved she was actually the author of this proof? Assuming that Catherine's the main character, which I think is a, a foregone conclusion in this script. Well, I think it really hinges on Catherine's ability to trust another person. Uh, she tells Hal at one, or Claire at one point, that she does, or I guess she tells her dad that she doesn't have any friends. Uh, he brings up somebody from the third grade. Um, she, her life has been entirely revolving around taking care of her father for the last five years at least. Um, and so she's locked away this proof. She Claire is not a person she trusts. She says at one time that she, she hates her sister. Um, so she's locked this proof away in a drawer, this great... Uh, Thing that's so valuable to her and she has to reach in the first 
part of the play a certain level of relationship, a certain level of trust with Hal uh, in order to entrust him with looking at this proof. Yeah, thinking about the plot from that particular journey, I think you're exactly right. The moment where the proof comes out then is a really important point along this journey of how is Catherine going to exist in trusting relationships with the people around her? Because as you say, and she says this, the fact that she was willing to show it to Hal is a huge step of trust with her. In fact, at one point, I think she says, I trusted you with this. And she says that she doesn't want to show it to anybody else, but Hal is the one she chooses to show it to. And it actually ends up being an obstacle or a complicating action to that trust because showing it to Hal does not go like she planned. At the beginning of the play, she won't even let Hal take one of her dad's gibberish-filled notebooks out of the house. And she's very, very suspicious of him. And I suspect that she's a person at that point that's suspicious of everyone and of their motives. Right. And we, I, I, I think that that is an understandable place to be. I think maybe one of the hard parts about this script is getting through this barrier of actually deciding that we like and empathize with Catherine. She's pretty abrasive as a character and, and she's fairly negative as a character. And that makes her a little bit hard to relate to. And as we start to unbox a little bit of what has truly gone on in her life, we start to see where some of this comes from. The broken trust thing, I think that the the first scene in Act 2 becomes a really... And, and now that I say that, I actually think this is not the first scene in Act 2. This is the second time that we see Robert in Act 2. She we have There's a flashback scene where she comes out. She's actually she's come back from school, come back from Northwestern because she can't reach her dad on the telephone. And she's concerned about that. And so she comes home, again, this is flashback, and finds Robert, her father, in the backyard in the cold, working outside, and... She, she, you know, she's curious, she's worried. And what Robert says is, no, I'm working again. The machinery is working again. I'm working on some exciting new stuff. And she really starts, I think she jumps on the bad wagon there, doesn't she? She seems genuinely excited. She wants to believe that that's true. And her father invites her to do that work with her, which has got to be exciting for her. She clearly idolizes her father and his mathematical career and his genius, and she values his invitation there. And she gets the rug pulled out from under her. She reads what he has in his notebook. And what is that? It's something about let X be the month of December, or it's just complete gibberish. Yeah, it's not it's not work at all. It's it's the same compulsive writing that he's been doing in all the rest of his notebooks. And you know, as we think about Catherine's journey of trust and where does the fact that she even has to be on this journey come from? These years spent with her father weren't just years spent taking care of somebody who couldn't take care of themselves. That's very hard. And there's lots of people who make that really hard sacrifice in their lives, caring for a relative who needs the care. And that's very hard. And Catherine then also exists at this next level of having the rug pulled out from under her. You would guess a lot. You Just when she thought she was going to finally get to go to college and be a normal person and have her own place. Yes. 
it all goes away. And she has a, a distrustful, hurtful, painful relationship with her sister Claire, too. They have a, a an argument, again, in the second act of the play about the fact that Claire wasn't there when Catherine was. Claire was out. Claire finished school. Claire had a job. She was living in New York. And Catherine was the one who was here, she thinks, sacrificing everything to care for Robert. And I think that Claire's response there is really interesting too. She talks about, Claire talks about the sacrifices that she's made to care for her father too. The 14-hour work days. The fact that she paid every bill. Yes, she put, she put in the money. She paid off the mortgage on that house. Uh, Claire believes that she was really helpful, but I must say Claire is not a very sympathetic character. No. <laughs> Claire is a really... <laughs> You know, if you read the like the summaries of the script that are all over every time somebody wrote a review and on the back of the script and all that, they always talk about Claire as like kind of a controlling sister. That's very much. The very basic description. There's a really great little nod to that or beginning to that that kind of starts it off in comedy right in their first interaction scene two or something of the play is the morning after Hal and 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 uh, Catherine have uh, have had their first significant interaction of the play he's been over a few times at that point Hal has and Catherine is up late at night and she discovers that he's been trying to steal a notebook and that's scene one of the play scene two is the next morning Claire has come for the funeral and Catherine comes out of taking a shower and Claire offers her a cup of coffee. Oh, well, how do you take your coffee? And Catherine says, black. And Claire says, well, have a little milk. And having a sibling who is, you know, who feels that there is an element of control that they can and should have over your life. I mean, what are some of the other examples of the way Claire is kind of trying to manipulate and, and lead Catherine to what she wants? She wants to take... Catherine shopping. She wants her to dress a certain way. She wants her to look good, but it's her idea of how to look good. She wants her to use her own, the shampoo that she brought from New York that has this wonderful organic thing in it that uh, <laughs> Catherine has never heard of. Uh, there's, there's so much sarcasm in Catherine's response to Claire throughout the play, I think. It's hard to know in some ways if was Catherine actually agreeing with Claire or was she just uh, humoring Claire? Yeah, and, and discovering, you know, how the, the kind of biting sarcasm of Catherine actually works, how genuine she is at different points, I imagine is one of the great joys of playing that character. There's a lot of deep, beautiful stuff in Catherine's character, but on a, just a language level, I agree, finding how that sarcasm, she's got a really biting sense of humor. She loves to jab back at people. Yes, and, uh, you know, the, the ultimate thing, of course, is when Claire uh, tells Catherine that she sold her home out from underneath her. Right. And and she is able to do that. And that's one of those things that you kind of have to catch as you roll because Claire owns the house. Claire has been paying the mortgage on the house so that Catherine and Robert could live there. In fact, at one point, Claire, as they're having one of those bigger arguments in Act 2, Claire says, I paid the mortgage on your three-bedroom home near the university while I lived in a tiny studio apartment in New York City. Yes. And so, I, you know, if you come at the world from Claire's point of view, this accusation of Catherine's that you weren't there, I was the one who made all these sacrifices and gave up my life to care for Dad— 
probably does seem unfair. Well, from Claire's point of view, Catherine chose to do that. She, she probably should have put their father uh, in an institution of some place to care for him, and instead she chose to keep him at home, and so that was her choice. Right, and that's one of the running kind of backwards-facing questions of the play as the characters look back on choices they've made previously in, under the circumstances that they live in now. One of the major questions is, was it the right thing for Catherine to be the in-home caretaker for Robert rather than moving him, like you say, into a home of some sort to take care of him? This is, I think the audience is primed to have a particular view of that question by the contents of the notebook that Hal discovers. He discovers a notebook that's got some actual real writing in it, not just gibberish. And this is the notebook that he tries to sneak out the door. And what does he find in there? Well, he finds that um, Robert very much appreciates Catherine and what she's done for him and for the fact that he has been able to stay in his home. It's a very touching piece of writing. Uh, during that time that Robert was lucid. Yeah, and, and, and there he says in that little piece of writing something very close to the fact that Catherine has been here and given up her life for me is the only reason I'm alive. That the only reason he has any hope to come back to working order to get his machinery, quote-unquote, working again are the sacrifices that Catherine has made. Now, and that's really the first time we've just sort of begun to see how Hal feels about Catherine because of the fact that he knows it's her birthday and he thinks about giving her this present. It's really quite sweet. That's right. And, you know, as this relationship of theirs develops, there's this one level of thinking of them as kind of strangers who are getting to know each other over the course of the play. But, of course, both of them claim that there's been an affection towards the other one for a long time, since Hal truly was a student of Robert's, a Ph.D. student at the university. Yeah, when he came in with his thesis, with his with the draft of his thesis for his major professor to read. Yeah, and, and actually, that's one of the flashback scenes we get. There are two flashback scenes in the script, three scenes total total with Robert, but one of those scenes, it's not really Robert. Catherine's talking to herself. But then there's two scenes that are true flashback scenes where we truly see the character of Robert. There's no reason to believe we're seeing this through a particular character's eyes or anything. Nobody's imagining these things. We are looking back at an at a different time. And one of the two scenes we see is this scene where Hal brings his PhD draft to Robert's house to have him look at it, to submit it for review, etc. And, and Catherine is there. And this is also the scene where Catherine tells her father that she's going to go to Northwestern. It's interesting that these flashback scenes we get, and of course this is true, they're not just random scenes. They're kind of crucial moments along, e I think each character's journey has a crucial moment here. If we think about the journey of Catherine trusting people, what is I mean, she she come brings to her father that she's going to Northwestern and her father's I think his main grievance is not really that she's going, but the when she decided to tell him. Yes, she she's already made a lot of her plans without consulting him. 
Uh, more or less like Clara made a lot of plans without consulting Catherine. And Hal is the guy that seems to find himself as the awkward bystander to a lot of these conversations, very intense conversations, first of all between Robert and Catherine, and then later between Catherine and Claire when they're talking about the fact that she has to go to New York and she's not going to have this house anymore. And Hal is also a bystander on some of that conversation because he's just come down, you know, with the with the proof and so Yeah, on. and and so there's this scene that we see that sets Catherine up to have that excitement that then in the later scene, which we've already talked about, where Robert he finds Robert out in the cold, quote unquote working. Well, at the end of that scene, he says, Please please don't go back to Northwestern. She's clearly been gone. And it's interesting to me that we kind of watch a little mini story between Catherine and Robert, between those two scenes. They're not right next to each other or anything. They're separated by what we might call the present moment of the play. But in those two scenes, the, the playwright picked two glimpses backwards to show us that have a connection. Not just two random moments entirely, of course, but also not just two unconnected moments to each other. Those moments really are their own story of Catherine's attempt to give up the responsibility of caring for Robert. And Hal was uh, was there at that time when they were making this, having this discussion. So he sort of has an insight that he probably didn't want into the relationship between these two individuals. Uh, it, I get a little bit confused between the movie and the play but in the movie there are some there is a scene at Northwestern in which um, Catherine is talking to a professor that she has there about not getting her assignments done and um, she promised that she'll get it done but I think that's the point where she leaves Northwestern and she's studying differential equations which is something that I teach and the professor mentions this subject and I'm thinking you know here she's proven this wonderful and uh, earth-shaking results about prime numbers why is she studying this other subject at Northwestern? Yes thank you for bringing up the movie the movie is the main thing that I forgot to say in the context section there is of course a 2005 movie which is a really wonderful adaption of this script in that case Gwyneth Paltrow plays Catherine and the great, incredible, iconic Anthony Hopkins is Robert. Uh, a younger Jake Gyllenhaal plays Hal, and then Hope Davis plays Claire. There's, of course, when you adapt to a movie, you get a lot of other ancillary characters, and there's other people involved. But you get to the really, I think, the core of that team is Gwyneth Paltrow opposite Anthony Hopkins, and that's a really great scene too. In fact, the scene where Catherine discovers Robert in the backyard in the cold. Uh, between Gwyneth Paltrow and Anthony Hopkins in the movie, I think is just incredible, incredible acting. And seeing that kind of, because, you know, the the that scene is about Catherine getting the rug pulled out from under her, but Robert too, right? I mean, Robert gets his heart broken a little bit by discovering what's really, what he's really been writing. Yes. He just kind of goes off. He's tired. He says, I'm tired. I'm leaving. Uh, there, there's sort of a recurring theme through the play of who's got the notebook uh, or of trying to give someone the notebook or not give someone the notebook or uh, and it kind of comes uh, to the end in the in the movie with um, Catherine rolling down her, their, her window as she's headed in the limousine to the airport and uh, Hal running alongside and tossing the notebook into her window. <laughs> and that, that 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 scene is obviously not in the play, but I think that there 
you know, is a similar feeling in this scene because Hal brings the notebook of the proof back to Catherine at the end of the script to help have her help him understand the concept. And at first she doesn't want anything to do with it. Right. She, at that point, she's trying in vain to claim, no, it really wasn't actually me because she's kind of suffered a little bit of defeat in her negotiation with her sister. In playwriting, Dennis, there's this concept of negotiation over objects, which is one of the way to move your scenes along is to place an important object that characters can fight over, not physically all the time, sometimes physically, sometimes verbally, sometimes more emotionally and, and things like that. And this proof is, of course, one just a classic negotiation over object. Who's got it? How is it given to who? Who has power over it at any given time? And one of the great backstabs of the play, I think, is once Catherine has stormed off upset, Hal comes back the next day. Um, this is after Hal and Claire have said, I'm not really sure that we believe that you actually wrote this proof. Catherine gets upset. Her trust has been broken. She expected Hal at least to believe that she wrote it. He doesn't. She's very angry and leaves. The next morning, Hal comes back to try to apologize. Well, Catherine's still sleeping, I guess, and Claire doesn't want him to see her. But Claire does give Hal the notebook. Give, he, she thinks, she feels that she has the power to give the proof up to Hal. She's she's views herself as Catherine's guardian, so to speak. Yeah. And she gets to make decisions on behalf of Catherine. That, for me, that is one of the more revealing moments for Claire. And it doesn't reveal her in a good light. If, you, if you're willing to give her the benefit of the doubt for some of her other questionable moments, the pressure that she puts on Catherine to come to New York, the fact that she's selling the house without really even telling Catherine or inviting Catherine's opinion, the all the controlling little aspects. Yes, you should eat breakfast. Yes, you should take cream in your coffee. Even if you were willing to give the benefit of the doubt to all of that, when it comes down to it and Catherine's not in the room, Claire feels like she has enough power and enough control to give the proof to Hal, something that Catherine has deliberately and specifically said she does not want. Yes. But I also think Hal has sort of endeared himself to Claire a little bit. I think that she's come to trust him or maybe trust him not to claim that he proved it himself or trust him to do the right thing um, insofar as she's able to do that. And I think she also feels that Claire is on the verge of going crazy, becoming like her father, and so... She's not really, Catherine's not really capable of making uh, those kinds of decisions. Well, let's definitely come back to the being like her father thing, because that's, of course, a really important part of the script. But I did want to make one one moment that's a little bit confusing for me is, is what you just described. She's willing, Claire is willing to give Hal the notebook because, and I think she says something pretty close to, I feel like you're a good guy. Generally, at your heart, you're not trying to deceive anybody, and you're you're not trying to do this out of selfish ambition or anything. She she feels at some level that Hal is in this for the right reasons. It's interesting to me though that that admission comes just moments after her accusing Hal of playing with her sister's heart, of sleeping with Catherine when Catherine was in an emotionally vulnerable place, of taking advantage of her. It, it's a little bit odd to me that those two things follow so closely one after another. The accusation that he's really a dirtbag who's taking advantage of her sister, and then the admission that she doesn't think he's really that much of a dirtbag, enough to give him the proof. Well, I'm sure she has no notion of the value of this item, 
of this notebook. It, as she says, it means nothing to her. She wouldn't know what to do with it, nor does she believe that, that Catherine would know what to do with it either. So let's put it in the hands of of a real mathematician. Yeah, and, and in fact, I'm not sure that either Claire or Hal have a real insight, maybe until the end of the script, about the true value of this object. Because at, on the one hand, of course, it's a really valuable mathematical proof. There's a monetary, I'm sure, and also publicity and, and praise and laud value to having done that kind of math. It carries some significant, like, worldly value. But Catherine also attaches some significant emotional value to the script, to, to the proof as well. She thinks about it, as we've talked about a little bit, as, a, as an object for which she has to trust somebody to give. There's some world in which letting someone into this mathematical proof is letting them into this secret part of herself that she only does after midnight once her dad has gone to bed. You know, there's this part of Catherine that connects the proof to an inner core self, maybe the self of trust, that it, re that it represents. And so for Claire to be able to so casually hand it over and for Hal to feel like he has the right to ask Claire for it. I mean, that's kind of a stab in the back too, let alone that Claire gives it to Hal. But the fact that Hal feels like he has the right to ask Claire for it, knowing that Catherine has said that it's hers, reveals that he might not yet have a real grasp of the true significance of this proof to Catherine. I don't, perhaps he doesn't. I, I think it's, the emotion that Catherine's having is something that's not uncommon. Anytime that we have invested ourselves in a project, particularly in, in writing something, um, it, the first time we show that to somebody else and say, what do you think of it? It can be very uh, scary. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about if this play had been written about English people, you know, uh, really high-level writers instead of mathematicians, what they might have found in that drawer might have been the next Moby Dick or the next Le Miserable, right? Beautiful historic novel that they discover. And that's one of the things that it is so great about the play is that it's couched in this world of mathematicians, the world of Dr. Dennis Brewer. But I don't know much about that world. Uh, but I do have access to some of the core of what the story is about. So one of those core things, to come back to what we were hoping to come back to, is this running worry that really everybody, maybe except for Hal, has that Catherine is going to be exactly like her father. And especially in the sense of, as they say in the script, obviously our language about this in the modern human world is hopefully a little more empathetic than this. But in the script, they say going crazy. Yes, and I think she has that own her own fear of that. I mean, she expresses that she has a fear that she might end up like her father. And Hal has to sort of reassure her that this is not a genetic thing. Just because her father suffered from this doesn't mean that she will. Um so, and in the end, you almost kind of feel like maybe she's giving in to Claire because she feels maybe Claire's right. Maybe I do need to uh, place myself under my older sister's care. Um, she doesn't trust herself. She has a trust issue with everybody else and with herself as well. Yeah, that that's definitely true. She, right away, really, even in scene one, she's when she's talking with the fake version of her father, the discussion leans towards... Am I crazy? 
And uh, she expresses this worry that she is going to end up in the same impaired mental state that her father is in over the course of her life. For those of you listeners who know and love Next to Normal, this is a similar journey that Natalie goes on to with her worry about having the same mental instability that her mother has. And this idea that we might inherit not only the genius of our parents or the talents and the gifts of our parents, but also the the suffering and the the hurt and the failures is uh, it's a pretty accessible theme even though i'm not somebody who's particularly worried about inheriting a mental illness from my parents uh you know the idea that we might turn out to be like our parents in every way in the good way and the bad way is a you know that's a very human feeling right and i think that uh, another theme there is that particularly in mathematics, they're saying that, well, all your good work is going to be done before you're 25, for example. And that had been true of Robert. He had done really good work as a very young person. And uh, Hal is worried that he's getting to an age where maybe he's past his prime as a mathematician. Uh, There's also sign of the running sort of thing that's out there that mathematicians tend to go crazy, as in a beautiful mind. Um, I don't think there's any statistical evidence of that, <laughs> but um, th- that's also kind of a theme that's out there that I don't, she's going to go crazy, not just because of genetics, but because of her her mental acuity. I was kind of interested in that, Dennis, and I was especially interested to bring that to your expertise. Is that an invention of the play of David Auburn's, or do you find that in the culture of mathematics that there is an idea, I think at one point Hal says, math is a young person's game. I haven't, I was interested in that, and I haven't actually looked up if anyone's actually studied that idea from a scientific point of view. I think primarily it's a matter of when there are prodigies, when there are young people that do come up with startling results, which there certainly have been, that that gets the most press. And Uh, so we hear the most about them. mm -hmm. Whereas when people uh, come up with, ideas at a, at a age, you know, more of an older person, uh, it doesn't make so much as of a splash. But um, you certainly need a lot of energy, a lot of ability to concentrate um, in order to uh, to do this level of mathematics. So to the degree that that helps to be a young person, uh, it helps. Yeah, well, that that's really interesting to know. And the idea that these characters all all feel like they're losing something as they go. I think that becomes a kind of a theme for every character as well. You've already kind of described how that definitely exists in Catherine, this worry that she's now aging. She's now older than her father was when he did his best work. So is she going to be able to accomplish anything? Hal feels like he's way past the age of being able to, you know, exist in that quote unquote young man's game of math. Robert obviously has other issues with that, but, but feels the same way that his best work was when he was young. The only one that doesn't fit that pattern in a mathematical sense is Claire. But do do you think like there's an instance where there, there's some worry about loss for Claire? I think she's concerned about losing her mind, um, but um, you know they talk about her wasted years, and uh, this notebook is really all that she has to show. But it's quite a lot that she does have to show if she can convince some anyone that she did it for those years. Um, 
when she could have been making friends, she could have been socializing and she could have been like her sister. She could have been in getting a job and meeting a, and getting engaged and having this wonderful person, Mitch, that Claire talks about constantly. Um, she's missed that. And Claire, I think, has missed some things, too. She, uh, as we've talked about, makes the accusation that she gave up a lot of her life, too, working so much to make the money to pay for things. But one of the things that I, I've noticed about what Claire is after in the script is especially if you watch the story from Catherine's point of view, Claire seems to be after a continued control in Catherine's life, a continued presence and influence. You know, when, when Catherine basically says, I can do everything you're saying I can do in New York here in Chicago, why would I leave? She's right about that. She can see a really great doctor if she wants to do that. She can go to school, get a job in Chicago. What's the difference between Chicago and New York? Well, Claire's not in Chicago. And so if Catherine continues to live in Chicago, Claire is going to lose a semblance of control that she's had over Catherine's life because Catherine has financially depended on her. That's true. And maybe Claire has guilt feelings about not being with her father, and so now she's going to turn that around, and she wants to make sure that she can take care of her sister. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, I think that that is definitely, at, at least Claire says that, and how genuine you feel like her guilt really is, is, you know, maybe a different actor will play it a different way, but I certainly feel like there's a genuine guilt there, and a feeling that if Catherine ends up being like our dad, then I can care for her like she cared for dad, and maybe that'll make up for it. If there's a sequel to this, I'm expecting Mitch and Claire to break up. <laughs> would you want to marry Claire? <laughs> no, that it, in some ways that would be really. I mean, she's she's got she's she's really abrasive in some ways. Yeah. And you know, the mark of a great playwright and a great play is looking at these stories that it's hard to find clear good guys and bad guys. And well, Claire does not come off very well in the course of the story. The I, I do I am really I'm persuaded and I'm brought along on her side a little bit with this idea that she's spent so long sacrificing her time and energy as a as a human in life, paying the bills rather than being the one that lived for her family. We're with Robert, I mean. Um, I'm less sympathetic. I think <laughs> I think Claire was doing exactly what Claire wanted to do. In all those 14-hour weeks studying and being a certified accountant, as she put it. I forget her exact title. Yeah. Uh, but the one thing that's kind of touching is that Catherine does end up liking the dress that they pick out for that's her. That's right, yeah. And uh, that's kind of a, an important an important connection between two sisters that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is probably the end of the time that we have to talk about this script. There are so many great things to talk about. I feel like we say that at the end of every episode that we could have talked about lots of other things, but that's the great part about a freewheeling conversation is you just kind of see where you end up discussing. And so that's been really fun. Thank you, Dennis, for being willing to join us on You're No Script welcome. this week. And we will have another guest next season. We really love to bring on guests that have, that bring their own level of expertise and interest into a specific kind of story or a specific situation but it's especially fun to have dennis because dennis and i recently did a show together uh and, and that was a blast it of was course. great fun so dennis isn't just a mathematician he's also a performer and an incredible singer so he brought that gift for us as well thank you 
And if you are interested in having a further conversation about this script, if you feel like we missed something or you've been in it and you have a different insight or you just want to chat, we'd love for you to do that. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The handles are NoScriptPodcast. We're also at NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. We've already had some great email and social media conversations with some folks as we've released these episodes. We'd love to have one with you. So reach out to us there. If you've liked this episode or some of our other episodes, that's great. Please tell people about them. You can share them on your social media or you can just tell other people in person face-to-face about them. That would be great too. You can find our podcast at Podbean, at Google Play, at Spotify, and at Apple Podcasts. We're in all those places. One of the easiest places to find us is just accessing the link that we post to the new episode every Monday on Facebook. So you can do that as well. With that, we're so glad that you've joined us and we're nearing the end of season four. So that's, I'm sorry, season three. So that's exciting. And and we'll let you know what the plan is for when season three will come to an end and we'll take our short break before start season four. So keep your eyes out for that. Until then, I'm Jacob Mann Christensen here with Dennis Brewer. And we were so glad to have Dennis. We will see you next time. Thanks so much. (laughs) 